Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we speak to PR professional and mum of four, Hayley Peters, and Professor of Psychological Medicine and Psychiatrist at the University of Manchester, Professor Catherine Abel. Hayley has first-hand experience navigating child and adolescent mental health services as a parent, whereas Catherine's current research is on how to improve CAMS so that more young people can get the help that they deserve. In this conversation, we discuss what CAMS is, the problems young people have with accessing CAMS, and how Catherine's latest research aims to improve the lives of countless children. Welcome to the latest episode of MQ's Open Mind podcast. Today, we're, our conversation is going to be focused around child and adolescent mental health. And today, I'm really delighted Greg and I are joined by two fantastic guests. First, we've got Hayley Peterson. Hayley is a, a mum of four and a, 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 as works in PR. But Hayley's going to tell us about her experience of navigating child and adolescent mental health services herself um, as a parent. And we're really going to focus in is, on the work that um, we're delighted we've got Professor Catherine Abel. And Catherine is Professor of Psychological Medicine, a psychiatrist at the University of Manchester. And we're going to hear about the work that Catherine's been leading on over the last few years, really focused in on not just understanding child and adolescent mental health services, but really how we help people better understand what CAMS is and how we access it and navigate it and hopefully make it better. So welcome both Hayley and Catherine. Hello. Thanks. Welcome in. Okay, maybe can we can we start with um with you first, Catherine, and tell us who you are and how you've really navigated or got into the role of working in, in mental health. So you can tell us a bit about your journey, your career. Okay, so well I started as a general medic in hospital and I finished the, the what's called the postgraduate exam. So I was all set to be a physician in hospital working, you know, in general medicine. And I worked at something called the Royal Postgraduate Medical School at the Hammersmith Hospital in London. I'd always lived in London and worked in London. Did my original career was started in Oxford and then moved to London for medical school and then really loved general medicine. But increasingly, because I was at the Royal Postgraduate Medical School, it was a research hospital, I was getting involved in research as a part of my routine clinical work, really. And a lot of the new medicines coming through then in the um, late 80s, early 90s, yes, that is how old I am, um, were drugs for mood disorder or psychiatric problems. And um, I realized that I really enjoyed research. And one of the things that I particularly was interested in was the problems with what was happening in research so that the samples they were using really depended on which participants we could actually get to agree, i.e. consent to go into those studies. And that just got me thinking about what came out at the other end of the studies was very dependent on the sample that you actually took through the studies. So at that stage, I didn't know whether I wanted to continue in medicine or I just medicine and do research. And um, a very dear friend of mine, who was a colleague, who became the first female editor of the British Medical Journal called Fiona Godley, she's just mm -hmm. retired this yeah. year, Fiona said to me, you should become a psychiatrist. You should go to the Institute of Psychiatry and do research. 
So I thought, that's not a bad idea. I'd never done any psychiatry because I had an accident, a psychic accident when I was a medical student, missed all my psychiatry, had a head, quite a bad head injury. And I had actually become depressed then too. So um, it was really interesting that that field. I thought, God, that is, that's a great idea. So I went off to the Institute of Psychiatry. So Colin Dollery, who was the lead of the head of, is a cardiovascular pharmacologist at the Royal Postgraduate Medical School. When I told him I was going to the Institute of Psychiatry, he said, that's a terrible waste of a career. <laughs> and I think that's so interesting because so many people back in those days really undervalued mental health as a mm -hmm. clinical um, specialty. Psychiatrists had to be really enticed to come and be psychiatrists out of general medicine. And there was very little research apart from the Institute of Psychiatry. So that really started my career there. And I've, I've been a researcher in psychiatry, psychological medicine ever since. Well, no, really interesting. So then oh, the move then, when did you move to move north to? So in 2001, I just got my what's more called my clinical certificates. I just finished all of my postgraduate psychiatry and medical training and I'd become a consultant, just got my consultant certificate in 2001 and I was offered a job. In fact, my boss at the time had been offered, they tried to headhunt him. It was the first mental health czar. Do you remember they had czars back yep. in the early 90s? Um, that was Lewis Appleby. And he'd come down to the Institute of Psychiatry because they wanted him to move there because he was the czar and they wanted the czar there and then he met me because I was working on the mother and baby unit there for Chani Kumar doing his locum and um, he then got me to come up to Manchester on the basis that I could open the first centre in Europe for women's mental health and the focus of that is vulnerable women and their children mm -hmm. and that's really how I got involved in this so my main area of interest is the overlap between parental maternal particularly health mental health and child outcomes child development mm -hmm. and vulnerability in children and so that's how I've got I guess more and more involved in looking at services for children and children's outcomes in our in our work great and we'll return to that I mean on the doubt in our conversation that interplay between familial health or parental health and yeah, absolutely. Caregiver health and, um, and 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 offspring or children's mental health. So maybe over to you then, Haley, and and thanks a million, Haley, for um, this is a bit of a jump on the dark view in a sense that uh, I think this is the first sort of podcast you've done or talking about this your experiences. Yeah. You're here to tell us obviously about your experiences with navigating. Uh, mental health services. So can you tell us a bit about, about your story? Yeah, sure. So um, I've got four children. Uh, my oldest, Winston, is 13 and a half. Um, and I've been concerned about, well, questioning whether or not he has ADHD since uh, about year two of primary school. He was always a really boisterous little boy, you know, quite classic signs of, you know, struggle to concentrate, he was getting behind with schoolwork, kind of unaware of sort of dangers um you know he even tried to leave school a couple of times which was a massive red flag to me and that's at primary mm -hmm. school um and I kind of flagged it up at primary school to the teachers but you know I was a I was 25 when I had Winston I was a new mom uh first time mom and the teachers were kind of like no he's just a boisterous boy like you're being silly basically and I kind of was fobbed off and I left it at that. And then it got increasingly worse. And I started to do my own research and think, actually, you know, I, I can tick most of these signs and symptoms off uh, with Winston. And I, um, it got to year four and then I, year five. And I started to get a bit frustrated with school. I went and had a meeting with a Senko at the school 
relayed my concerns and um, was told Winston's not on my radar because he's not a child in crisis and that's a good thing. So I was like, right, okay. So um, the, at the time there was Rochdale Additional Needs was an organisation. They came in and observed him um, and they said he had developed coping mechanisms, things like, you know, fidgeting with a rubber and things, things to keep himself occupied in class. And they were meant to come in and they suggested doing some Lego therapy with him and with the teachers and to train them up to do it as well. Then they, I don't know what happened, but they just disappeared. They never showed at school again. And then in year six, I had quite a few meetings with his, his teacher again, relaying concerns. By this point, he was like ripping holes in his clothes. He's coming home with holes in his uniform. There was a few, quite a few issues um, where the teacher had flagged things up and um, they referred him to CAMS at that point. Um, and I think it was about good nine months. We were at high school by the time we were seen by camps and we we went in, we had um, a chat. I relayed all my concerns again. They sent out some, are they called SNAPS forms, or SNAPS questionnaires? Those were sent out to um, myself and to his school. Um, I completed them, sent them back. Didn't hear anything for ages. I think there was a staff shortage at um at CAMS they weren't chasing anything up and and I think at the same time it was like school weren't um hadn't filled the forms in it either it was coming up to another year before we were seen again by CAMS um, I got follow-up by this point school had filled the form out I don't know who at school had filled it out they'd not liaised with me and CAMS rang me up and said um school aren't seeing what you're seeing at home um we're going to discharge him if you agree. And and I kind of felt a bit kind of pushed into it, to be honest, because and, and and made to feel a little bit, you know, silly about it. Uh, I remember in the meeting when when I'd had the meeting with CAMS, they seemed quite reluctant as well. They kind of tried to put me off, uh, saying things like, you know, if you do go down the route of diagnosis or testing, that uh, it can it can prevent jobs, you know, they can't get certain jobs and things. Um, so it, it just felt like, you know, no one, there wasn't, there was a lack of support from yeah, camps yeah. and from school. I'd agreed obviously for him to be discharged. Um, and then we've gone into secondary school, continued in secondary school, and we're seeing the same behaviours, the same issues. I've been liaising with the new Senko at the school, he's been much better. And they've put, they've put some things in place to support him. So they are, the school are acknowledging he has traits, things like fidget spinners, timeout passes. They go and check on him to make sure he's okay um, once they've briefed out the work and he understands it. So they're recognising he's got traits. The new Senko actually rang CAMS to check that, to see if we could get referred again. And they said no, because it was within a 12-month period of being discharged, sorry, yeah, that's the word, 12-month period of being discharged. So, again, felt fobbed off again. And there's just no kind of guidance on where to turn or what to do next. So, at the minute, I've been contemplating private assessment, thinking that if we've got that treatment plan in place, we've got that diagnosis, or I just don't want him going into exam periods because he's going to be going into year nine come September with these issues. So, kind of that's where we're up to in a 
Well, no, th thanks for, for sharing your story, Haley. And I think obviously what it highlights is a number of issues that parents up and down the country will be experiencing and highlight their number of things to do with obviously what are the criteria for admission in the CAMS, what is uh, information sharing and the timelines and potential delays in getting treatment and assessment and treatment. But that's, I mean, these are all really important issues. So it'd be interesting to hear what you're, what you make of obviously when, we, when Catherine talks about what she's been doing and in, in CAMS. And, and I think that if we look at the evidence out there, there certainly seems to be, and we'll look for the, the actual evidence from, from Catherine now, of, of clear evidence over the last number of years. And this is, if we exclude the pandemic for a second, and if we look at the period over the last 10 years, there's growing evidence of increased mental health problems amongst young people and increased evidence of neurodiverse conditions, as we know, greater diagnosis of ADHD and of autism. And so maybe, Catherine, that's maybe a way to maybe bring you in and really maybe you can touch on some of what Haley has said, but also maybe think about what is the evidence telling us about the increase or otherwise of mental health problems amongst young people? Haley, it's so interesting hearing your story. It's It, it really resonates with what we've heard from other, mainly mums, I have to say, who've, who've been joining in. And that probably won't surprise you either. And that's relevant to us as well, that it's mainly the women who get involved with this but so so what we see is that as you say Rory it's not just before or during the pandemic that we've seen this change there's been a steady increase the trend has been steady upward in fact the pandemic didn't really make a difference to the mm -hmm. slope of that curve it's just steadily increased that number of kids both turning up to primary care so general practice with a range of mental health symptoms not necessarily an illness but a range of complaints or symptoms and remember that of course those kids are all brought by their parents and again it's mainly the mums who are bringing them and um, what we know is that about 50 percent of kids who present to primary care to gps are not requiring any further treatment or assessment so just over 50%, over half of kids who present with any kind of mental health symptom, which is good news. So that's very good news. If you follow them at least for another year or five years, that they don't continue to have a sort of long psychiatric career. And, you know, what I certainly hear from parents is what's going to happen to my kid now? You know, if they've got this diagnosis or they're presenting with these problems, a lot of it's anxiety related, you know, what's going to what's the likely outcome for them? So there's a very small number of kids who will then go on to develop a need to either be seen again by the general practice and then an even smaller group who will need to go into secondary services, what we call CAMS, Child and Adolescent Specialist Mental Health Services, and then a smaller proportion of those who will have medicines prescribed. So the medicines, any medicines, are prescribed in the secondary services and then get picked up by GPs. So we can see those prescriptions in the general practice data and a very much smaller group. And those are the kids, mainly boys, but not exclusively, who've got, um, who've presented in teenage usually rather than earlier. And I hear what you're saying is that your son presented much earlier um, with slightly different neurodiversity, neurodevelopmental problems. But it's the kids who develop um, psychotic illnesses. So that's hallucinations, delusions, quite serious kinds of symptoms, even fleeting. Those are the kids who tend to have the worst longer term outcomes. And what I mean by worst is that they continue to have to be seen in secondary services, go into inpatient services, 
be treated long term with medicines, things like that. So what we're seeing in the um, CAMS referral data is quite interesting. There, over the past 20 years, we've seen an increase in the number of kids being referred for the kinds of symptoms that you're asking to be looked at. So that's not really a mental illness as such. It's much more things about concentration, behavioral type things. Um, and those tend to be more boys than girls. And there has been an increase in diagnosis of, as you're talking about, ADHD, um, attention deficit hyperactivity or attention deficit um, disorder, specifically without the hyperactivity. And the other group is the autism spectrum disorders or ASD. But when we look at the more severe end of both of those spectra, whether it's the autism spectrum or the attention deficit spectrum, what we're seeing is that there's been very little change over that 20 year period in the more serious end of that. So serious autism with intellectual disability and requiring really quite a lot of input and serious, quite debilitating ADD, ADHD with intellectual disability and real difficulties in learning. I'm not suggesting that people with ADD don't have difficulties learning, but the much more severe end, we haven't really seen a change in the more severe groups and neither have we seen a change in the rates of presentation of more severe things like the psychotic disorders or indeed things like severe eating disorders in the girls in particular like severe anorexia there's a lot of anorexia that occurs for a very brief period about six months and the same and what we're also seeing is a lot of self-harm presentations but again for most of those and that's young women again very much increasing rates over the last 20 years of young women presenting with self-harming behaviours, a, a wide range of um, cutting and um, alcohol substance misuse, taking tablets, that kind of self-harming. That tends to be transient in, in a one to two year period in teenage over periods of distress. So again, what we're seeing generally in the data is there's much more presentation to services, but in terms of severity, most of that additional presentation is not very severe, if you like. So what that tells us and what we know from talking to people is that people have become much more aware of presenting a problem as a mental health problem that needs treatment. They're much more open to thinking about treatment pathways for kids and they're also much more likely to go to the general practitioner and ask for help but also we've seen that um, so some people suggested that when the mental health support workers came into schools that we'd see a big increase and that hasn't really changed in fact what we've probably seen is a slight decrease because what they're not doing they're, they're managing things in schools where it works well so they're not getting into services if, if that makes sense. What we've also seen over the pandemic is that there was a, in the survey data at least, there was a big increase in the numbers of children self-reporting or parents reporting problems, psychological distress in their kids. But it was very transient and it tended to be in young women and it tended to be anxiety related um, symptoms. And those tended not to need medicalization. And I guess, so there are lots of things for us to think about here is, you know, do we think we have a very sick group of children? Do we think it's about changing attitudes towards presenting symptoms? Do we think that the only services available that people know about are the GP or CAMS? So that's where they go. Is it the case that 
people are over anxious about their children? Is it the case that we don't need to medicalize our children, but this is teenage, a lot of it's in teenage, not not your case, Haley, but a lot of it is presenting first in teenage, the majority. And is it that we need, rather than presenting to medical services where you're much more likely to get a drug, like an SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is an antidepressant, with all of its potential benefits, but also potential disbenefits with withdrawal, et cetera? And is it that we are seeing just the system in flux here? And what we need to understand is really what the need is, and that actually the services that we had, which were general practice, primary care, and then CAMS, specialty, secondary care, and nothing much in between. And I guess what we've seen in the data when we look at referrals into CAMS is that between, let's say, 21 and 22, about half a million children and young people were referred into specialist services. And that's a, a real increase, does double since 1999. So in the last 10 years or so. So that's really interesting because, of course, it suggests that immediately you see that, oh, gosh, We've got double the number of children going to specialist services. You think, well, it must mean that the children are much more unwell. But if you think about what I've just said about people only knowing about two kinds, that, you know, it's either general practice medicine or secondary specialist medicine, and there's nothing non-medical in between, then you would get, if you've got more awareness and more awareness both in parents and the children themselves to talk about it, you would get much more referral into services. But if that referral is what we're seeing about quarter of those referrals are unsuccessful and they're unsuccessful primarily because they're not deemed to be of a sufficient severity for those specialist services which really deal with severe and enduring mental illness not simply the presentation of some psychological symptoms psychological distress that we don't really don't want to discourage people presenting with distress but what we also don't want to do is medicalize children and adolescents so we need to understand where the balance lies between those two things. So I'll stop there because I think yeah, there's, there's a lot in that and you might want to kind of come back and... Oh, well, no, that was a brilliant overview, um, uh, Catherine, with obviously the the epidemiology of, of mental health problems, but also um, some of the... I think many of the questions we have moving forward, both in research, but also in how we care planning, how we deliver care and support uh, for our young people. I really like the point you make, made about, well, there's many, I don't think we know for certain about why there's been increases in certain presentations and not others. I think that's a question we still need to explore more. There's some inconsistency in, our, inconsistency in the data, especially in the suicide attempt data, for example, among young people. More severe end, that has definitely been increasing. But I think I love this idea, a really important point of, but actually, if we only have ostensibly primary care or CAMS and secondary care, and there's nowhere in between. Now, we in Scotland, we've been trying to change that actually and looking at new models of delivery. But I think it is a really important question moving forward. So we, but before we um, move on to your project specifically, the research project we're here to talk about, Hayley, is there any, how does that, in terms of hearing Catherine's um, whatever answer their response, any, any reflections? Yeah, it's actually really interesting and it makes complete sense in terms of the journey that we've been on. Um, and I think it just feels like the model's not fit for purpose anymore. I mean, we sit in the middle um, of, of, of that spectrum, I think. And and it, yeah, completely, it just perfectly explains why I feel fobbed off at every turn. And I think, you know, we're at a situation now where 
I'm really concerned about Winston's self-esteem um, because yeah. we've been on, you know, he's not really been supported in the way he should have been and it's affecting his self-esteem. And then you worry about how that's going to translate into adulthood. And I think if there was, if there was somewhere to turn um, to support children who sit in the middle, then that could maybe avoid some of these issues later in life as well. Yeah, I mean, it highlights the importance of obviously early intervention. Um, so we think don't don't escalate. But maybe, Catherine, can I just move us on then, just to the to the project? So you're here to tell us about uh, a project, a National Institute of Health Research funded project, looking at CAMS. Do you want to tell us a bit about it and and, and what you found and so on? Yeah, so um, thanks so much, Rory. So the overarching aim of the study, as I said, we originally thought we're just going to build a digital tool. That's it. That's the solution. And they said, whoa, as I said, steady on. So the idea really was to understand what the problems were from everybody's perspective, all the stakeholders. That's from you, Hayley, and, uh, and parents like you, and from Winston and kids like him, and from people in the system at the other end from the service providers, the general practitioners doing the referring, majority of people refer are general practitioners, schools, et cetera, et cetera. And so we wanted to understand what the problems were, but we also really were keen not for us just to be, look, here are the problems, because in this research I do generally in large data sets, what we end up doing, and I'm always saying to this to my research group, I say, I don't want them just to be, oh, look, here's another set of problems that we're going to tell you. Oh, this is all dreadful. It's like listening to the news every morning. They always start with terrible stuff. It's like, oh, my goodness, there's so much good stuff going on. So we were absolutely focused on having a combination of where, where are the challenges and where are the best solutions? And if there are best digital solutions, and when I say best, we really need to think about systems which are struggling and can't take on lots more face-to-face, staff-heavy burdening uh, projects. They need to be things that are actually going to reduce the burden on staff and really make the system easier for people and patients. So we were absolutely convinced that we needed something that was very low cost, sustainable, simple, practical within and could work within the system that already existed. So so that's what the idea was, that we'd see, um, <clears throat> we'd look to understand why people were having problems in the referral process and and what it turned out was. And so, so, so I'm just jump in there. So in, in terms of who, so you're recruiting, this is a study in, across, is it in the north of England? Um, and is it any parents or people trying to get access child and adolescent mental health services? Who are your population? So we did two bits to it. So we kept a bit of a quantitative bit, and that was primarily data from the north of England, from nine different services across five different trusts in the north of England. And we, what we did was we wanted to see whether there was a really nice study from uh, 2017, I think, from Scotland, showing that about 20% of referrals into CAMS were, as they said, rejected or um uh, inappropriate. We 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 changed that with our with our groups to unsuccessful. Um, so the referrals for all sorts of reasons didn't go were not were turned away, and so we looked at that in our own regional service using quantitative data, and that was very very interesting in and of itself because what it showed that it was there was huge variability not only within region but within trust. So there were some CAM services with some trusts had more than one CAM service, and some of those CAM services had virtually 100% success rate. And that was probably because they had a very specific service that they offered that everybody knew about because it was very well communicated. And the comms was very good. 
um, the outreach with the local service, uh, sorry, referrers and schools was very good. There was very good communication in the system. And so everybody knew that they didn't do this, but they did do that. And for example, they had a, a very, an excellent neurodevelopmental assessment so that you get fast throughput of all of these cases, a bit like Winston with Haley saying, I want to see whether my child has ADD or some neurodiversity. Can you just assess them? Boom. I don't need long. I don't, they don't need drugs necessarily. I'm not asking for drugs. I just want, do they have this? If that's the case, are they going to be benefited by having additional funds with SENCOs, the special educational needs workers in schools for maths or English or everything? What is it, you know, can you help us deliver a care package? Now that, of course, doesn't really need a specialist, whole specialist CAM services, doesn't really even need a medical clinician, unless it's complex with, as I said, intellectual disabilities, a whole range of other comorbidities, in other words, additional problems alongside the ADD or the neurodiversity. If it's a more simple, much more, much less severe problem, which the majority of this increase is, then we think that could be dealt with in this kind of middle tier service, which spe specifies and could be run in family hubs in the community. So those, those are the kinds of solutions which are not necessarily digital solutions, but those were clear things that came out of our consultation. So we did that quantitative work where we looked at the proportion and we saw this huge variability across the system. And that really depended on what the configuration was. What didn't vary across, across the system was that the numbers were increasing and that the kinds of things that were getting to services were waiting longer. So people were waiting longer because I always sort of use the analogy of if you suddenly cancel a load of trains or if you suddenly flood a station, um, you know, the same number of trains, you suddenly flood that station with 10 times the amount of people going to a festival or something. You all want to get to the same place. It doesn't matter if the trains are really good and they work really well and they're on time and everything. There's that You're just going to get not enough you know, not enough people, they're all going to be waiting longer. And what's going to happen is that some of the people who really need to get there first aren't going to get on that train. And they may get worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And so that's partly what I think we're seeing in the systems. There's huge variabilities, as I said. The other thing that came out clearly from the quantitative data was that what CAMS is, is very different. It depends on these, what these clinicians can offer. You know, you can't tell a consultant to become an autism specialist unless they want to. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a pediatrician who's a cardiac, cardiac pediatrician, that's what they deal with. And if you haven't got a cardiac specialist for pediatrics in the area, then you go somewhere else. So that's also a part of the problem in the system because it was ve it's very reliant on the medics, if you like, convening what the service configuration is. The only thing that every single CAMS and every single region has to have and you may or may not be aware of this is eating disorder services and yet that is a minority and it's re relatively rare severe eating disorder disorder it relatively rare but it's had very good lobbying from charities like beat and other uh, mm -hmm. other charities so you know it's very imbalanced well it also has the highest mortality rate as well obviously that's right but of course relatively of course the absolute yeah, yeah. is very low mm -hmm. like suicide it's extremely low yeah, yeah. but it's very risky and so of yeah. course mm -hmm. for severe anorexia you're going to need inpatient services absolutely but you also need inpatient services for problems with you know very high and severe and complex uh, neurodiversity problems yeah. with intellectual disability for example so the quantitative data showed us that the problems were 
similar to what the Scottish paper had shown and that they weren't region specific. And they showed us also that the quality of information that was going to Department of Health to collect these records was very poor and very varied. So there's no standardization of data collection. There's no standardization of what the CAMS referral process looks like. The forms are all different. The way you access it is different. Only in about 70 plus CAM services in a region, only about 10% of those had a functioning electronic system, CAM system. Most of those systems were focused on the general practitioner being the referrer rather than the family being able to open that referral and directly start the referral. And if you think about it, from what Haley says, she's the person, the family's the person who's most likely to give you the decent referral. Well, then, let, let me just, just so I'm clear, so 10% of CAM services were for that refer were on paper referrals. No, no, no. So only 10% of them had non-paper referrals. A very small minority of CAM services have an electronic referral system yeah. that goes directly into CAMs. And very few of them are focused on the patients and the families, yeah. carers. They're all, if you like, focused on the professionals. Mm-hmm. And um I'm going, I'm sort of jumping ahead a bit to what the qualitative data with the stakeholders showed us. So, so the quantitative data was showing us these kinds of problems, these number-based problems. And the last bit of number-based problem, I think, which is really relevant, is that the reasons, the commonest reason, and it's about 25% we found of these referrals were unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. And uh, the commonest reason for that was that they had they weren't uh, didn't reach the threshold. They weren't severe enough to, to to go into that service. They or they didn't. The services didn't have adequate information to make a decision, so the, the forms weren't properly filled in. And the third reason was that they were deemed to need an alternative service. So the vast majority of that could have been told to people way at the beginning of services because the average duration they had to wait was three months to know yeah. whether they had, you know, for assessment, whether they'd been successful or not. Now that's three months when everybody's got to the stage of, it's already taken them a long time to get there and they're all, you know, tearing the hair out. Absolutely. And they haven't been signposted elsewhere. So there was very poor signposting as well. And all of this information, the quantitative information was reflected in what uh, stakeholders told us. And so if I, do you want me to stop there? Or do you want me to run through what the stakeholders told us? Well, just tell us a bit about the stakeholders, but just so, um, well, I'm keen to just, because we're, we're, time's marching on. So I'm just keen to though get, so what did the qualitative data tell us? But then what are the key, met- so is this research making a difference or will it make a difference to it CAM definitely services? definitely will make a difference. Huh? Yeah, yes, it will. So because what is so interesting about this is that it is so not rocket science. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. other words, these are like, Really? Is that really the problem, you know? And of course, if there were a standardized, a nationally standardized, very simple form that was facing the parents and the carers and schools who are much more diligent than the GPs, who've got 10 minutes, about filling in forms, that that, that form was started by parents, children and care and other stakeholders, and that there was only a GP bit that had to be filled in. They have to fill in stuff about medicines, previous 
previous convictions kind of thing, you know, any time they've seen the kids before, any other relevant medical history that they've got in their data, that would be a minimal input from the GPs and it wouldn't hold up the system. And then all of that, you know, information, you know, one of the things you said was so interesting, Hayley, is that when they came back to you and said, well, you know, the service and the schools aren't seeing what you see at home. Mm. You know, well, we want what you're seeing at home. That's the detail we want. So if you were able to put in that detail, and if in this process, in a simple form, which we've provided um, with the, this piece of research, we provided a prototype form for people to look at. This is a kind of thing we could do that could be national and standardized, but also localized as well. So localized services could be signposted. So that if you went into the, it wouldn't allow you to submit it unless you had all of the relevant information for CAMS. So you get rid of completely that inadequate information problem. You would get rid of the thresholding problem because that would be dealt with in the form. If you didn't meet the threshold, the form would say, you need this service now. And this is how to contact this service. So Haley, you need an assessment and you can get this assessment in this way. And you can go into the private sector and this is how much it will cost you. And this is the private provision in your region. Or you can wait for this amount of time to get this by the NHS in your region. Or you can do an online form and you can you know go to your gp with the online form and if they agree with you, you that will sign you off as having add which needs senko help do you see what i mean so there are a whole lo load of ways that this form itself could solve a lot of these problems but, but okay so that sounds brilliant a practical solution and um but the question is <laughs> implementation so what's the likelihood What's the likelihood to be implemented? So, the, the, so, so we, so what we got with was, if I just run through the headlines for what people said, what they said was the, the general themes that emerged and the things that really could influence the design and outcomes of our study were that the real priorities for parents and carers and young people was reducing the waiting times, yeah. and having clarity about what CAMS is, what it offers nationally as a standard and then locally in their region and what the thresholds for acceptance would be, improving transparency of that, having some form of understanding about where you are, like a, a you know, like a like where you are in a journey on your Google map. Where are you? How many minutes have you got to be, you know, in the system, as it were? And also, so after the referrals made, really, you know, real contact and communication with CAMS about where you are in the in the system. And also the other thing that young people particularly want is they want to be much more involved. They said, you know, they feel like there are all these adults doing stuff to them, whether it's their parents or school teachers or GPs or CAMs, telling them about what's going to happen to them, about them. And they want to be, particularly the older kids, want to be much more involved and have their voice much more central to the process. So that's really important. Um, and they want their needs to influence the solutions that are proposed. I guess the other key thing was variability and having this collaborative referral form that was really really important and then the capacity for signposting would be really important mm -hmm. for people so um i guess what we think is that there are lots and lots of things we can do which would all help people to get what they need much earlier on in the system to stay in the system and know where they are in it and know what other supports they can get while they're waiting, if they do need that still, and if they do meet threshold. And also really 
just to support services as well, to reduce their burden of having to triage lots of, they still have to have an hour long assessment meeting. Even at the end of it, they say, well, we don't have the information we need. They have to have gone yes. through and got all these people together. And that's prevented somebody else coming for an assessment at that time. So there are so many inefficiencies in the system at the moment, and they're all different everywhere. Now, implementation is what you said. Can we implement something like this? Well, partly that depends on MQ. And it depends on policymakers and it depends on NHS England pushing for this to be policy. And it really depends on children, young people, parents and other stakeholders lobbying with us in the second part. So the second part will be developing in and beta testing and in, testing the feasibility of implementing in different services, a standardised model, a standardised form, allowing it to have that individual, if you like, um, local regionalized element to it to be uh, really tailored to what's going on regionally and locally and to seeing how well the services all the different kinds of cam services can fit it within their model can will it be acceptable for them will they take it on board will mm -hmm. they use it will they replace their clunky old systems that we suggest they've got with these newer systems and what are the challenges for that how is it going to become sustainable that sounds really exciting. When, when, so when's that second phase or that next phase happen? So the next phase is in the process of, of final parts of funding at the moment. So we've got through all of the different stages and we're just waiting to hear whether we've been awarded that second piece of funding. We're working with MQ to understand how charities, for example, the Prudence Trust might work with us in a separate aligned piece of work and other charities, potentially the Wellcome Trust, might work with us to develop some form of sustainable uh, embedding of this kind of a, a process. Now, look, I'm not saying uh, sorting the the referral system is the be all and end all. But I also don't think the be all and end all is loads more money to CAMS for some of the reasons that we've alluded to is that it may be that what the Haley suggested, which is we're stuck with just two yeah. services, we're stuck in the middle, is addressing where this excess is coming from and seeing that it's not serious mental illness. These are just difficulties that need help doesn't mean to say that they're not important, but they don't need inpatient or drug type approaches. And nor do they necessarily need a GP who yeah. doesn't really understand neurodevelopmental disorder. Why should they? Healy, so what are you filled with optimism? After, after <laughs> I mean, it sounds great. It sounds, it sounds absolutely amazing. It's absolutely, you know, the kind of thing that I think is called for. Um, I think I was that what really resonated with me was that kind of switch to a, a sort of a form that focuses on sort of parents and carers yeah. mm -hmm. um, and their referral. You know, I think teachers have a lot to do. And, you know, my experience is when I've spoke to teachers about Winston, sometimes I feel like they don't fully understand. Well, why should these, you know, their job is to teach, but fully understand the sort of behavioral um, challenges and I think they just think of ADHD as one thing, for example. And you know, if it's not hyper, it's not got ADHD, but there's so many different types. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's really interesting. And I think the signposting thing is absolutely essential because, like, my experience is just being passed from different charities and um, services and no one really giving me any answers and just feeling in limbo and totally helpless. And it's not great as a parent, so... Yeah, yeah, it sounds that's amazing.
Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, this whole actual study seems really interesting because it's funny because especially what Haley said about being bounced around from different like services and stuff. I have ADHD. And when I was growing up, I went to the GP several times and asked and and told them about my um, what I was going through and stuff like that. And I wasn't really getting much back. They just kept bouncing me. Same thing what, what you said, Haley, about how they were bouncing your, your son about. It's the same kind of experience that I had. The same thing of bouncing from service to service or, um, or I guess when I went, there was a lot of stigma against like ADHD and stuff. It's a bit different nowadays where you, you see that more people get diagnosed. But back then, it wasn't even that long ago. I'm talking about like early 2000s. We're going to like, you know, my mom would go to the GP and say my son has um, problems like focusing and um, the teachers have said all these different things. But because it's a, a, of a case of, well, it doesn't fit their box or they haven't personally seen something Then it's just more just go away and maybe come back again. And I've gone several times. I've gone later on in life and the same and I'm still getting the same kind of thing. Like you say you got ADHD, but can you prove it and stuff like that? And um, it's always been a, a struggle. And I just I, I wonder if stuff like what. Um, Catherine is saying over her research if if that existed back then I would have been diagnosed a lot quicker a lot easier um, the times when I try to assimilate with my counterparts or assimilate with like my classmates in in the fact where I would try and compete with them or, or be on or, or try to be on the same level as them especially when I have my um, neurodivergent problems just trying to stay at the same level as all of them it's just I, I wonder if if life would have been a lot easier or, or happier or stuff like that for me growing up so um, I'm happy that research like this is you know exists and things are tracking in the positive direction what's really fascinating is um, that when Haley agreed to this podcast she didn't quite know what we were going to the focus of the conversation um with Catherine but actually it's a brilliant case study meets the real the the research this particular research and Deborah research project because clearly your forms your response what you're hoping to implement Catherine would definitely have helped Haley and her family and and countless others I think that point you made earlier about there's that middle ground of people who don't need secondary level care, but or, but they need some sort of support or help from some some services. That's just signposting to that is not simple, and it's hugely variable across the regions of the country, and obviously the, the whole issue of waiting lists. So that's fascinating. So we're coming towards the end. I have one last question for both of you in a second. But Catherine, is there anything before I, I sort of wrap up this bit into to our last couple of questions? It, anything else you wanted to tell us? Because I'm hoping we can come back to you after the next phase, hopefully you're successful the funding to see it being implemented in practice yeah, and making a crossed, difference. Yeah. Fingers crossed indeed. But is there anything else you wanted to say about the project that you haven't had a chance to say? I mean, just, you know, so one of the things, one of the questions that that I think is always is got across is how valuable and how actually central having that stakeholder involvement is. You know, so this started by, you, if you like, a clinician stakeholder saying to us, you researchers don't know your business. You don't know what's what it's. We know what's needed. And that told us what we needed to do, and then how we needed to do it. And it's all really been told to us by 
the feedback from all of the different stakeholders. And for example, things like developing national standards for digital referrals, you know, having the sufficient flexibility to support the diversity of the CAMS configurations locally and, and regionally. And also knowing that, you know, if we if we can make people, one thing that came across very much is that one, parents feel that can they want CAMS because that's the gold standard because that's kind of what they've been fed. They've been told that's the gold standard to see the psychiatrist consultant. You know, it's not actually, if you get somebody who can do these assessments rapidly and appropriately, for example, for Winston, you couldn't care less if it's a doctor or not, medically qualified or yeah. not. You don't need a me medical qualification to do those kinds of assessments. And actually, it's much more efficient if you can keep it in the community and take the funding. You don't, we don't want more funding necessarily in CAMS for that. We want funding for family hubs where it's comfortable for kids to go so they don't feel stigmatized. They don't feel, I've got a mental, I've got mental health. You know, when the kids say to me, I've got mental health, I said, well, good for you. You stick with it, you know. But it, it's really... It's this is just a complaint that you have. My son has ADD. You might guess where they've got it from. But um, the point is that we did the assessment online for him and then spoke to the GP and got that kind of ratified. And that's been helpful in his, you know, in his career in university and maths just just to have because he's got quite severe ADD. But, you know, it, she didn't need to see a GP. He didn't need to waste Cam's time. So I think it would just be helpful for everybody if we could use this to rethink what's needed, as Haley says, to understand where better resourcing is needed, not just to think that the gold standard is secondary care always, because it's not. There are lots of great alternatives. Brilliant. New models of care. That's what we're looking for. So um, just to finish, then, just one quick question, just which we planned to cover earlier, but we, the conversation went in a different direction. But Hayley, you're on this podcast with MQ <clears throat> and we're a mental health research charity. If there was one thing, that one question, research question that we as mental health researchers could address, what would you like that to be? Yeah, one question that I wonder is like, what, why are we seeing more of these cases amongst young people? Yeah, and that's, that's a big, big question to answer. So give it a go, <laughs> Catherine. So I don't think there's one simple answer to that. It's, it's a complex answer because I think when you say why are we seeing more of these cases, part of it's what we've already talked about is that some of these kids were just bobbling along in the system. And I'm not talking necessarily about neurodiversity. If you're talking about neurodiversity, we can think specifically about that. But uh, a lot of kids, for example, had difficult teenage and they never came to GPs. And there's a greater awareness and there's a greater propensity for people to bring their kids to GPs. Whether that's appropriate or not, I think that's open for societal discussion. I think sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. So one of, one of the things is that we could be reducing what we call a treat, uh, treatment gap so that there was a need that we weren't filling. So encouraging people to come to the doctor will actually be closing that treatment gap and treating people who really need it. But it could also be um, providing far more kids coming who don't really need treatment, who we don't need to medicalize. They're just having, a, if you like, a conniption, that bit of distress over teenage. And actually the family needs support, not the child. The problem's not in the child. The problem's actually just in what's going on in the family. I think we don't focus enough on families. So that's another element. If we think specifically about neurodiversity, there are a ton of very interesting, some very biological ideas about changes over the last 30 years in rates and prevalence of um, neurodevelopmental disorder. We genuinely think that's a real change. It's not as great, I think, as we thought it was. There, and, and there is 
Not a great deal of change, as I said before, in the more severe end. But we're seeing this more spectrum of, of, of neurodevelopmental pre presentation. Some of that will be because of better awareness, some of it. But some of it is that there genuinely is an increase. And as I said, there are a whole range of biological explanations, including things like estrogens in the water, God knows what, because of women taking the pills since the 50s. I mean, there are a ton, I can assure you, of very interesting and all of them are relevant. Uh, you know, pollution in the atmosphere, who knows? It's likely not to be one simple thing. It's likely to be a combination of things. Just to come in there, Catherine, just, so um, Hayley, we have lots of prior episodes of the podcast and in different ways we've addressed the, this question as well. So I'd encourage anybody to listen to our back catalogue show, so to speak, Craig. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I'm just, we're over our time, our time slot here. So I'm just going to, one, one last question for you, Catherine, the same question to you. You're not allowed to say your research project. The question is, what big question will you, as a field of mental health scientists, do you think we should be prioritising? Uh, well, I think mental health scientists, I think that's that's too broad, but let's just stick to children and young people. Uh, 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 children okay. and young people's mental health. Um, I, I genuinely think that the key understanding that we don't have now, that we need more understanding about, because I think it'll make the greatest difference, child and adolescent mental health, is the relationships between members of the family and the family situation. So I would like to take the spotlight away from problems residing in children and think about families and supporting families. Now, Haley, this is really interesting. There is, you won't know this, but back in the 50s and 60s, there was some a phenomenon called the schizophrenogenic mother, where essentially mothers were, if you like, blamed both genetically and socially and in, in terms of their child-rearing parenting practices for causing schizophrenia in their children, primarily boys. Now, that is not at all what we're suggesting here. But what we are suggesting, what I would like to suggest, is that we don't pay enough attention either to the genetics or the social elements of family and that we need to understand because... When we look at families with serious mental illness and the parents, the vast majority of those kids don't develop a psychiatric disorder or even the same mental illness as their parents. So the vast majority of those kids are really resilient. We need to understand what creates resilience in these very high risk families, what creates the lack of resilience in families where there isn't high risk. And we need to understand more about what we can do to support families and parents to make the right choices about uh, accessing care, accessing help, and and really to think about their children as just part of a system as opposed to individually. Now, there are things like neurodiversity, particularly the more severe ends, that I think, you know, even if we know that a child is ADD, there are lots of things in the environment that could be helpful to that child. And I know that with my son, um, and I'm sure Haley, you do too. Um, and I know that what I do can make a difference. So the family search as opposed to the children. Okay, well, on that note, thanks, um, Catherine. That's a really um, positive way to end, uh, sort of ending on hope and optimism and, and how we can move forward to support the whole system, really. Families are at the centre of that system and our young people are at the centre of the family system and the broader social ecosystem. And I think we need to be looking at that more broadly if we're really going to tackle the challenge of mental health, um, not just among young people, but across the lifespan. So big thanks. We're looking forward to see 
hopefully the implementation goes well, uh, the next phase goes well, Catherine. And Haley, thanks a million for joining us. And, and hopefully some of that was of interest to you and it's helpful to you. It was really helpful for us, certainly hearing your story. And I really, really hope that, that Winston gets the support and help that he needs moving forward. So a huge thanks. And thanks everybody for listening. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.